Hold on, guys. Don't faint. Don't faint. Oh, we're almost there. Don't worry. Phew. Feeling better? Kyle. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny. Oh, no. What have I done? Kenny. Kenny, Kenny. Kyle. I Kyle. I'm just going to launch it. Kenny. Get her. It's over 9,000! Nani? Configure the language logic interface for Japanese. Kawaii-fi. Kawaii-fi. Kawaii-fi radio. Konnichiwa, and welcome to a new episode of Kawaii-fi radio. The, the podcast pod- where we look into the world of anime and manga. I'm your host, Kyle, and joining me are my co-hosts, Coco and Kenny. Um, um, wait, am I Coco? Uh, am I Kenny? Oh, that's a fake word. Did that? we swap you <laughs> in the balls? Pokeballs? I, 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 I think I've, I've at least recovered from my Pokemonitis, but I, I do believe I might be in the wrong seat. I I'm, mean, just, I'm just very impressed you were able to carry us to that Pokemon Center. I know, we're, we're not like guys. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm strong like a macho. <laughs> strong like a macho. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, it is a new episode of Kawaii-Fi Radio. We have moved studios, finally, and we're all up and running. Um, and that's why we're having difficulty figuring out who's who. The seats are all different. There's always a way to celebrate there, of course. And no episode would be complete without us yapping on about what we've been enjoying this season. And I, I think one of the standout, surprisingly short-form animes that we've been watching a fair few of... It's been Isekai Quartet. Yeah, I've been really enjoying it far more than I feel I should. I just love all of the little interactions between all of these random characters that would obviously never meet otherwise. I haven't uh, seen much of the other series, so I find this like a great introduction to all the other ones. But I am a little worried for it, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in case of uh, Darkness of Konosuba. Yeah. I feel like they are milking her joke a little too much, making it sort of like a one-note deal. I thought you were going to mm. say you were worried for everyone else. Yeah, I, I, I'm worried for everyone else. Yeah, generally. <laughs> Especially everyone who's from the uh, Demon Lord anime as well, because oh, that's so they, they're all meant to be villains, and that's right up Darkness's street. I, I love oh the, the, the two voices we get with him. Yeah. That's so funny. But I mean, along with that, there's been uh, there's been so many wonderful short form anime this season. I mean, mm. uh, let's be honest the the big long length ones haven't been as exciting as previous previous seasons. But there there are mm. still some gems in there. But uh, I, yeah, I particularly was... have been enjoying Senryu Girl. Yeah, that's as enchanting. have I. It's as you say, enchanting. It's just the characters for all of their mysterious little quirks and flaws are just. Touching. I didn't think that it would be this engaging. I mean, it's I, just about haiku and I, everything. I didn't think they could keep the joke going. It's a haiku, long. and it was, it's about this this high school aged girl. Is it high school or middle school? I think um, the high school. Yeah, high yeah, school, high yes. school aged girl and her thug friend. Not my words. Uh, yeah. the words of the series. <laughs> And um, he's got a scary face, doesn't he? Yeah. So he doesn't really have many friends because everyone's scared of him. But he's really he's into a haiku, as is she. Mm-hmm. She only um, it's her only yeah. It's it's Very her awesome. only her only mode of communication is haiku. But we don't know if she's actually talking or just showing these scripture boards to people because yeah. we get a little bit of voice acting when she shows it because yeah. it reveals what she's saying and it reveals it in it's haiku. Kind It'd be kind of sweet if we found out that she actually couldn't speak, and that is her way of communicating. Well, I mean, we've been introduced to some other very interesting characters in it as well, such as a girl who literally draws her face on a board to show her emotions and her words like a flipboard while she holds this big drawing pad in front of her face. As talented an artist as she is, she is 
almost as terrible as you know social communicator as the main characters. Mm. And random fact: if you go to your local office works in Australia, likely another equivalent in mm. the US or the UK or wherever you're from, you can actually buy a massive post-it note um, <laughs> pad that will enable you to also communicate by drawing your face and its expression. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, when we were looking for uh, equipment for the new studio, we uh, went to our locus, local supplier in Australia, that's Officeworks, and uh, they have a post-it note, those lovely little sticky notes, yeah. the size of a metre by one metre. Yeah. Um, for our US friends, that's uh, three and a bit foot by three and a bit foot. <laughs> it's big. And it's sticky. It's st- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you just want to leave a note for your mother in the most passive-aggressive oh way possible. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, the passive-aggressive neighbour or housemate would have a field day if you get... Oh my- Massive right. post-it note. If we ever get a passive-aggressive note, e- each of us, we have to go and buy one of those. <laughs> and that has to happen. And we should write it with each of our expressions looking at them disappointedly. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, um, we did have to delay this episode slightly because both Kenny and I were down with the case of uh, the zombie virus. Yeah, that's um, why we took them to... Well, that's why I heroically carried them to the Pokemon Center. Yes, yes, trainer. We Didn't are I? much in, in, in your debt. Yes. Um, which actually led me to reading a, um, a manga uh, while I was down with Allergy for the past two days. All 260 chapters of it, in fact. Whoa, now. Oh, and my God, I thought you were about to say pages. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and That's that is better. I Am a Hero. Now, this is a manga which started back in about 2001, and it is a Japanese zombie manga set oh. in in Tokyo, um, much like we've seen some of the other shorter ones. Um, very similar in premise as to the American zombie film genre, mm-hmm. but... Obviously, with its own Japanese twist. Is and it anything like High School of the no, Dead? No, it's nothing like High School of the Dead. Um, <laughs> not that kind not of that kind. manga. Or the it, it actually yeah. it, it does do a lot of um, interesting storytelling. The main character, like it took me 10 chapters to realise it was actually a zombie manga. There were lots of little bits hidden in the background. The artwork is phenomenal. Like School Life Club. Yeah. Yes. Um, but it's you, you're actually seeing what's happening... Um, in the lead up before the outbreak actually happens properly. So little bits and pieces hint that something's not quite right. And you, if you knew going in it's a zombie manga, then you can pick up on them. If you don't, you, you won't necessarily just go, oh, it's another flu epidemic. But the main character is so immensely strange. Is He's, he a hero? Do you like him or is he an <sighs> anti-hero? I, I don't know, even after reading all of it. He's... Uh. He's not a bad guy, but he's not a good... Well, he's got morals somewhat in the right places, but he's your cliched manga artist who's a bit of a perv, a bit socially awkward, a bit strange. Are they all like that? Is that a cliche? It it is, according to Japanese mangas at least. Um, And the whole story follows him as his escape and return to the city. He meets people on the way, people die. He rescues other people. Um, he's got a, he conveniently had his uh, gun with him because he's went going to a shooting range. Um, and in Japan, you're allowed to own a rifle for the express purpose of hunting or using it a shooting range, but it must be in a locked case at all times, unless it's at that location. Are you allowed to own ammunition? Yes. Fascinating. Oh. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it actually taught me a lot about cri- Japan culture. And yet their crime rate is like. The I, I think it is very hard to get that license. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. 
Um, but <laughs> anyway. So, moving on. <laughs> moving right along. We're looking at how anime and Western culture have collided, both from traditional artists to modern animation like mm. we usually discuss. So this feature, we're looking at some of the first places you could ever watch anime in an English-translated situation. So that's both in Australia and abroad. And the impact Japan's animation and manga culture has had on the West. It's been fascinating to research. Mm-hmm. And we'll also be taking a look at a unique crossover between anime and Marvel comics. And as part of our back catalogue look, and before looking at one of the anime series, that had a big hit in the West thanks to a Game Boy game. <laughs> I think you can take a guess at what that is, and it's not the Mario film. Um, Wario? Is it <laughs> Wario? No. It's Wario, isn't and it? And in our first ever East Meets West segment, we were looking at a critically acclaimed Western animation which took a number of cues from Japan. But first, let's get to the news. Making headlines. Really? Awesome. Anime news. Changes to the Academy Awards and a delay to the Shield Hero. This is Kawaii Fi Anime News. Mirai has won the Annie Movie Award for the Best Animated Feature Film at the International Stuttgart Festival of Animated Film. The German festival selects 10 nominees from a list of over 60 films each year before declaring Mirai as the top feature from the past 12 months. It's been five years since a Japanese feature has won the award, with Makoto Shinkai's The Garden of Words previously winning the award in 2004. The Academy presenting the Oscars has announced a change to the rules for the animated feature film category, which could improve anime's chances to reach the Oscars. Previously, the animated feature film category would only become open for entries once eight eligible films had been released in cinemas that calendar year. Nominations will also be automatically open to members of the short and anime film branches, giving the industry a say on nominations before other members of the Academy opt in. Animated features are now eligible for nomination if they've had a screening in either the city of New York or Los Angeles County. Detective Pikachu has had a great start at the box office, becoming the best video game movie debut ever in the US, despite competing against strong competition with Avengers Endgame. The film took in 54 million US dollars in its opening weekend, coming in second at the box office to Marvel's Juggernaut, both in the US and internationally. The film will have to earn over 430 million internationally to top the current highest-grossing video game film, Warcraft, and a sequel may have already have been greenlit, though questions remain over its potential writer, Sonic the Hedgehog's Oren Uziel. Several new anime announcements have been made in the past few weeks, with shows for the next season and later on the cards. Isekai hero novel, the hero is an overpowered but overly cautious hero, is getting an anime adaptation in October, according to the manga adaptation's first volume. The story follows a summoned hero, Saya, who is incredibly powerful but doesn't like taking risks, killing slimes with his ultimate attack for instance. Also based off a light novel, Isekai Cheat Magician has been listed with a July premiere for the series, following the story of two friends who get transported to a fantasy world and become magicians. And a third season for real rural comedy series, Non Non Biori, has also been given the go-ahead with a promo video on the show's website. The show previously had two seasons, which ran in 2013 and 15, along with a movie last year. Ghost in the Shell director, Mamoru Oshii, is working on a new anime series due out in 2020 with the new studio Ichigo Animation. No details on the story have been announced at this stage, though it's said Oshi has been developing the series over the past decade. The show is currently slated for a Japanese release sometime next year. The dub for Isekai Hero series The Rising of the Shield Hero will be delayed by two weeks, according to Crunchyroll. 
The announcement by the Tasty Streaming Service explains the break will occur after the airing of the 19th episode on May 19, with weekly releases returning on June 5th. At this stage, the service says the delay is due to unforeseen circumstances, though no further information has been given. Staying with dub news, Season 3 of Bungo Stray Dogs has just landed on Crunchyroll and Funimation, with new episodes due out each Friday, and an English dub for Domestic Girlfriend is also in the works from streaming service High Dive. No re- release date has been announced at this stage. And that's your anime news for the week ending May 18, 2019. You know what? I'm surprised that WoW hasn't started an animated series. Yeah, you, you do make a point. I, I could imagine the team at Blizzard would be quite interested in something like it's that. Such a, uh, it's such a doable story. It really it, is. It really it's is. commonly said about their uh, animated sort of like short movies introducing new story segments that they really should just give up the whole video game thing and just make animated movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember even back in the Warcraft 3 days, everyone was really impressed by the quality of the CG cuts for the end and beginning of storylines. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, something I do want to mention from that is the new anime from the Ghost in the Shell director. A decade in the making? Oh, that has my Can't hype. Wait. I hope it's good, but here's something really weird. The studio he's working for... They've only just been founded, and the company, Ichigo, is actually an energy and real estate company. Uh, yeah. I have questions. I have so that many questions. Really I really strange. only have the one question. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> <Nani>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but Yeah, so that's... it's going to be interesting. They've said potentially spring or summer next year, um, but as with any anime which is only announced like this there is no name there is no script there is no plot available online no one knows or even what genre it fits into um therefore that release date is very vague uh, mm. most irritating oh yeah and then of course detective pikachu i mean i was kind of expecting it to mm. do well the uh trailer ryan reynolds offbeat kind of humor I've yeah. been He's excellent at marketing. He is. <laughs> he did put the whole thing online. If well, anyone <laughs> wants to have a look and watch the entire thing, it's not the film, obviously. A, a sort of a not April Fool's joke. It, it, to be honest, it's probably one of the funniest bits of viral marketing I've seen in a while. I mean, he's done this before with uh, Deadpool allegedly leaking the um, the test footage. Test footage. Well, that well, that was essentially to force the hand of the studio to say, "Hey, look, we want this made," and now you've seen the reaction from people. I have my own little conspiracy theory that this was a planned thing, mm-hmm. the same as he's done with this Detective Pikachu thing. It's just his form of kind of comedic marketing. Mm, absolutely. But we need to leave uh, this and head to what we are talking about today, which mm-hmm. is when manga came west. Wi-Fi Radio. And now for our feature presentation. <laughs> now featuring. So if we're going to talk about East meets West, we have to start right at the beginning. We do. As and is your sort of... Bang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of your expertise, Let's begin isn't it? right at the beginning. Okay, and we're going to start with the Silk Road, also known in China as the Jade Road. 
Because this is... What? <laughs> we have to start right when trade was first established. I'm not entirely yes. sure that they had anime back then, Coco. Well, let, let, let's let's just clarify a few things now. We're talking about anime's influence on the West. Now, this is not just anime. This is manga and Japanese oh, yeah. uh, you know, comic culture full stop. Graphic, and yeah. also art. Mm-hmm, and artwork. Yeah, it's all intertwined. I'll try and make this real fast. So, obviously, the Silk Road is very old. It was established sometimes between... 144 BCE and the 1450s. It's what's kick-started cultural trade. Uh, philosophies were traded, you know, religions, science, the Black Plague. So the, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> the, the Silk Road is literally a road which wound its way through the Himalayan Alps, is that well, correct? Well, actually, it's a number of networked roads. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, um, and th- this is all through, like, the area around China to get from yep. the Asia to, yep, to the Western Africa, culture. Africa, up to the southeast corner of Europe as mm-hmm. well. If I'm not mistaken, it was Marco Polo who kind of made it famous through trading and writing a journal of his travels through it. Yes, mm-hmm. and also there was a maritime Silk Road. Obviously, Japan is an archipelago. Pelago? Archipelago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, At least you didn't say archipelican. Like, <laughs> I mean, that, that would have been different. Yes. <laughs> Just I bit. feel like there's a story behind that, Kyle. <laughs> so, it first, so Japan first opened up thanks to this maritime Silk Route. Mm. Now, let's talk about a quick bit about Sakoku, which is literally translated as closed country. Before Japan was what is today, which is constitutional monarchy, mm-hmm. it was a shogunate. And the last shogun family to control Japan before the establishment of the Meiji period, which mm-hmm. is the one just before the one that is right now, mm. were the Tokugawas. And they enforced a very isolationist foreign policy for about 220 years. People couldn't literally couldn't leave the country during some of this time. Foreigners used to come in, but they were usually shooed away. I remember learning about this in school. I never fully understood the reason behind it. Yeah, um, I didn't go into it too much, but it's got to do with the fact that a shogunate is what is kind of similar to martial law. It was Mm. the military that ruled. They did have an emperor, but it was more of a figurehead and it and the, the emperor very, very rarely got involved. Um, so Ironically, sh- during this time, one of the few countries they chated, traded with was the Dutch. Yeah. And that introduced lemonade, <laughs> which Ramune. became Ramun. Ramune, Get out, really? Yeah, that, that's how Ramun came about. It's actually, it's Western lemonade passed on through the Dutch. That's so good, isn't it? Um, So this foreign policy ended in 1853 because uh, the Japanese shogunate got a shock because the American Navy turned up and they (laughs) were like, oh, they got really advanced stuff. (laughs) We are a little bit behind, oh dear. And so throughout the talks that they had, basically the Americans were like, you guys have to open up. So they did. Um, anyway, so that's where cultural trade began. Okay, and so I'm guessing from there, some of this artwork started leaking out yes, of Japan. Yes, the prints and oh. Vincent van Gogh is one of the most prominent Western artists who first became influenced okay. by a Japanese prince and it started to spread from him to his contemporaries. Um, he bought his first woodcut prints in Antwerp in um, about, I think, the end of 1885. And now remember that Japan has only been open since 1853. Mm-hmm. So it's about, give or take a few years, about 30 years after they broke. Yeah. So, so they've, they've started sending their prints out and people are picking them up. 
and they're all over the place in Paris as well, which is where he moved to after Antwerp. And he was, it was very, very different because Western artists normally arrange their pieces from close to far. There was a proper depth in it, but Japanese artists left the middle ground of their compositions empty while objects in the foreground were sometimes enlarged. It was flat and they had bold outlines and massive big blocks of colour. And so, of course, an artist is going to see that and think, whoa, mm-hmm. that's different. Yeah, mm-hmm. and when you think of um, Western art, it wasn't so much about the blocks of colour. It was all to demonstrate depth. Yeah. So um, these spatial effects were so unusual that um, Van Gogh was just taken by them. And didn't he end up drawing his own version of one of those woodblock prints? He drew his own version of many of them, actually. Oh, okay. So from him, he... Inf- he like his contemporaries were people such as Gauguin and Emile Bernard, and from there it just spread. Okay. And interestingly enough, as well, um, years later, when manga was brought to France, quite a few manga authors in France have become quite famous because French have a similar uh, comic mm. book. Um, the Bande dessinée. Yeah. yeah. So it was, I guess, more palatable to them. and um, Which explains the strong connection that you have with anime in both France and Italy because yes. Italy also has a similar culture around comics. Of course. There we go. That was actually kind of where I started my search in this yeah. uh, thing. I was trying to look at where manga, anime really hit the West. Hmm. There was no real defining moment. It's like all these sort of things are very, very slow crawl, things sort of seeping in everywhere, whether it was America... Uh, Australia, England, all these places. But yeah, I found an old article from um, uh, from France yeah. where concerned parents were talking about the influence of a certain anime called Kiandi Kiandi or Candy Candy. <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, when I was really young, I lived in France for a year and that was on TV. That's Dans le monde de Candy, tout le monde est joli, la 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 la. It was just like... And Kids uh, were nuts for it. Apparently, I'm yeah, guessing this wasn't like, you know, R-rated berserk. Oh, no. This uh, no, was like this was the single, frilliest, girliest, absolutely cutesiest thing you've ever seen. So, of course, parents were terrified. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Too it. much moe for them. Mm. That said, uh, they thought that this show was sort of dangerous. It was corrupting the youth with a strange culture from the Orient. <laughs> oh, but if this what this language, is like right? the Tamers yeah. show. Yeah. It's so sweet. So it, it's clearly not giant robots or anything like that. No, which is another massive export into change, actually. Yeah. Um, arguably one of Japan's biggest... Oh, see what I did there? Exports. Uh-huh. Uh, Stories of Robots, Mecca, uh, started with Astro Boy. Yep. And that is, of course, a Western exchange because it was influenced by the story of Pinocchio. Oh. Uh, retelling... Because that word became... Uh, Astro Boy itself was actually shown on American TV in the mm. 70s as well. It's almost, it was, yeah. It's almost a tennis game of ideas where they're just traded yes. back and forth and back mm-hmm. and forth. It's wonderful, isn't it? And seeing how it grows and develops is just so. From we from the sentient robot, we got Tetsujin 28, which was I think I've read that it's also known as Gigantor. Um, oh, I think s- I've heard of that. Yeah, Wait, that takes I know, it. Might that takes that it a little bit more of a step. This was inspired by the US firebombing of Kobe, uh, and it's a modern take on the Fran- Frankenstein story. This <laughs> robot is massive, and he's controlled um, remotely, m- remotely yeah. b- 
by a little boy. And then <laughs> what we're very, very um, used to today started with Mazinga Z, which was a robot controlled by a human inside it. Mm. And so robots, interestingly, robots as glorified armor hark back to the aspects of Bushido philosophy. In mm. the case of Mazinga Z, it was actually made, like this robot was in the story made from a metal only found in Mount Fuji. So completely Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As Japanese and as it can possibly but be. But I mean, that, that does lead us to a very important point, which was Gundam. And mm -hmm. Gundam... That whichever just series you've watched of it, because my lord, there are so many, <laughs> many multiple series. Yes. Th there are so many of them that were shown on Western TV, mm. especially on networks like Cartoon Network, Toonami, and so on. Yeah. And uh, me and Kenny were looking into this because we went, all right. So when did people actually get to watch anime properly? Mm. And it's hard to pinpoint it, but we had a look at a few things, and I think we'll start with Kenny because you were looking at Toonami in the US first, weren't you? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I. At first, I thought it was only in the U.S., but then I discovered it's a very worldwide thing. It didn't just play in the U.S., though it did start there. It's, uh, it's in Australia. Mm -hmm. It's in the U.K. It's in Pakistan. It's in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Um, so a lot of countries, clearly. So Timbuktu. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Uh, possibly. That's awesome. Give me a minute to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because at that time it was a programming block on Cartoon Network. So it was like that, a period of the night which they dedicated and said, that, you know, just like we have with Adult Swim at the moment, um, where it's a specific time slot. And they said, this is, you know, Adult Swim's time slot. We'll show those shows. Same thing with Toonami. And this was before such delicious streaming services as Crunchyroll, before Netflix, before any of those things. This was people's introduction mm -hmm. to Japan, to anime. Um, this is where Gundam was like uh, first basically introduced as mm. well as, yeah. of course, uh, Dragon Ball Z, of course. What about Power Rangers? Uh, Power Rangers oddly um, has a bit of a checkered history, which we'll get into in another episode. Mm -hmm. But depending on the, the company, because of the toy rights, it would depend uh, on the channel it ended up on. Of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but but um, yes, Toonami had such uh, showrunners as Tenchi Mio, Evangelion yeah. at a later stage. Mm -hmm. And... Um, even later on, was basically the introduction to such huge hits as Naruto. Yeah. Now, Toonami is actually quite interesting because they had, in, in different countries, they were actually operated independently. So you have the one in the US, which did look at all different aspects of anime, and it was a programming block. In the UK, they had a, that programming block originally um, since, I think it was 2000. In 2003, they turned it into its own channel. Oh, wow. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't the content you would receive in Australia or the US. It had martial art films on there, along with anime series, Western cartoons, and the dedicated Adult Swim programming block. That sounds cool. pretty good. It was marketed towards male teen audiences, Granted. but it didn't show any content above G rating. Yeah, you can you can I'm see the, the contradiction here. That's so they all these audience members are crying out for something like Neon Genesis, Trigun, Cowboy Bebop. They want, they want none complex of it. stuff. They got Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, and but mm. I, also worth noting these are all the four kids dubs, i.e., Christian household friendly dubs, um, and so that basically didn't sit well. So it didn't do particularly Ooh. well. And then in 2006, they pretty much committed seppuku and relaunched the, uh, it with a focus on teen soap operas, sitcoms, and non-animated shows. This ultimately killed it completely in the UK. Well, oh, did, did this was this something that maybe 
perhaps had to happen for the greater good. Probably. <laughs> so what, what's <laughs> the UK took a while to get into anime compared to the rest of us. And, mm. you know, Australia and America got into it a lot earlier because of that closeness with Japan. I mean, mm. Australia's version of it just came from a sort of a copy from the cable network. Mm-hmm. We were getting it on Foxtel, or at least the rich kids were. And uh, that ran from 2001 to around 2006. It was cancelled around then, Mm. as it was uh, for a little while in the US. Mm -hmm. Declining ratings saw that, despite it having all these things and a very dedicated fan base, um, Mm. it went under for a good couple of years. Then something interesting happened. So, a bit of backstory for Cartoon Network. Every year on April Fool's Day, to ring in the day, they play The Room, as in the Tommy Wiseau movie. (laughs) What? Really? Uh, That is something which I don't (laughs) think we can cover on the show, unless it's made into an anime. Oh my god, please, someone make it into (laughs) an anime. Oh, I'd love to see it. But so, what happened was that this has been going since um, the early thousands. Every year, April Fool's Day, that happens. On 2012, it sort of changed. It played the opening credits, and then it was cut off as the uh, mascot for Toonami, Tom the Robot, turns it off and says, Ah, sorry about that. I just visited my doctor. It turns out I have a case of the April Fool's. And basically announced that um, Toonami would be returning. Huge new lineup. But obviously, that's on April Fool's Day. Everyone's going to think it's a joke. Yeah, it was. There was mass confusion until the day later when things actually launched, and they had... (laughs) Bleach, Death Note, Dead Man Wonderland, rehashes of all like their old classics and new favourites. That's so good. Yeah, it was a return to form. Still going Mm. in the US. But I mean, this is looking at what we have with the broadcast mediums, but home media and cinema were a big part of this as well. And oddly enough, as as I mentioned, obviously in Australia and America, it was fine. Um, We we got it through SBS um, and other groups and so on. In the UK, they didn't really have anything until about 1987. Now, there's a BBC documentary which aired in 94 called Manga. Hmm. And it's presented by Jonathan Ross, of all people. And this was around the time anime was starting to take off in the UK. It was literally a couple of years after Akira had come out. And you can actually find it on YouTube. And I'm going to put this link up on our Facebook so you Mm. can have a look. The whole 30-minute documentary is on there. It's appalling the way people from the uh, 90s talked. (laughs) But while some anime, you know, had aired there, it took a lot longer for it to reach those UK screens. And this um, resulted in local producers, a company called Manga Entertainment UK, mm -hmm. who do not produce manga but produce anime and release it in cinemas and home release, to actually launch. That actually <laughs> came up a lot in my research. There was plenty of negative press during the uh, Akira years, during mm-hmm. when times when these big movies were coming out. It was often referred to as the negative slur Japanimation. Yeah, which... But that means something entirely different now, doesn't it? Does. It? it does. So this man- manga entertainment was founded in 1987 officially, but they didn't start doing anything till 1991 to organise the distribution of Akira into the cinemas. Hmm. And... It's released hundreds of titles in cinemas and both and for home media as well, so your Blu-ray and so forth, and even was a financial backer for some animes such as Ghost in the Shell. I sense a butt coming. Well, it also has the horrible honour of producing a range of very poorly received dubs. Oh. Very 
poorly received uh, dubs. You got examples there? Uh, no, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the list it's is quite long. Oh yeah. um, the name also has caused a lot of confusion because they trade in anime, not manga. And when they, despite opening in the UK, they actually opened the branch in Australia in '93 and the US in '91. The Australian one worked alongside Madman Entertainment, which is Australia's version of anime distribution, which was founded in '96, and they actually. Madman eventually bought it in uh, 2008. The US arm went under, and that mm. was in 2011, right after they released Redline. Oh, and oh. you think Redline would have helped because that's a that's a seminal film. That is pretty epic. That's to be one honest. of the big big anime films. It's mm. uh, listeners check that one out. Mm-hmm. Mm. We will cover it in a later episode. But I guess that kind of wraps up the East meets West exchange. Um, a, a, mm-hmm. a bit of it. I mean, there's far too much to go into, but yeah. that's a kind of a brief overview. Please have a look online, and we will uh, obviously post that link to the YouTube video online as well. But uh, we've got to go to a, a, a very, very strange connection between Western comics and Eastern animation. Kawaii Fire Radio. I think I watched that as a kid. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Back catalogue. Yes, in this back catalogue, we're talking about Marvel anime. I think I caught this uh, a few episodes of it a while back. Mm-hmm. So this aired between 2010 and 2014, and it was a collaboration between Marvel Entertainment and Madhouse Studios in Japan. And the aim was actually to reintroduce the characters to Japan because Marvel comics were not selling well in Japan because they're competing with the massive deluge of manga. Mm. It feels like kind of a tall order to try to compete with yeah, anime I mean, and it's manga all in established, Japan. isn't it? it is. It's Very. already there and it's been there for decades. So the idea was actually to create a separate universe of manga, um, oh. fo- well, sorry, anime focused, you know, Marvel stories. So Madman was literally given full creative control to do this, being guided to do so by incredible comic writer Warren Ellis. Oh. Yeah, so, and if, if you don't know who Warren Ellis is, he's responsible for many of both Marvel and I believe DC as well. Yes. yes. Best storylines. He is an incredible mm. writer. You're a fan, aren't you, Kenny? I am indeed. And this features Japan as a setting for all the stories. So there's four different series. Each of them got a 12-episode run each. Um, there's two films as well, um, which are set afterwards. The first one, of course, just like the cinematic universe, started with Iron Man. Hmm. And Tony Stark goes to Japan to produce a new arc reactor, power station, and showing off a new type of armor he's made for others to wear when he retires. The Iron Man Dio. I wonder <laughs> what that's going to do. It might maybe betray him. What? <laughs> what? You the thought ar- I was really? a superhero, but it was me, yeah, Dio. The Dio. Oh, oh. <laughs> The armor goes berserk as any giant robot does in Japan, and does it's up it to Iron Man him? to get it under control. Does it tell him that... He didn't realise, but it was him, Dio. All along, yes. All along. <laughs> the amount of jokes that can be made from the series, uh, it's incredibly meme-worthy. Mm-hmm. Turns out there is a secret society in the shadows and evil organisation oh, yeah. based on the Zodiac. Yep. The first enemy he fights announced itself, I am cancer. The internet had a field day with that one. Far <laughs> um, I, I have caught a fair few episodes of this, and the animation's beautiful, as you'd it expect is. from Madhouse. I saw one episode, I believe, mm-hmm. and... Far out. It's I, know, I say that a lot, but you know, it, it's it's well it's done. The great. lighting's well done, and it's quite on a like they they are quite accurate on how they depict the characters as far as animation. Tony does look obviously 
like how that a you'd imagine like the Japanese would animate him. Oh, yeah. it's great. Um, so it features the JSDF um, Ho Yinsen. Um, if you've seen the Iron Man films, he's the man in the cave in the first Iron Man film that helps Tony build his armor and dies. Hey. Um, and obviously, um, they then have a brief crossover with Wolverine, similar to how obviously we see things happening with. Um, uh, in, in the cinematic universe, um, where they have that the crossover yes. at the end to introduce the next series. That then brings in the Wolverine series in 2011, where Wolverine's girlfriend, Makio Yashia, who went missing a year prior in the comics, is suddenly appears to be kidnapped by her father and taken to Tokyo, and her father turns out to be the head of a Japanese crime syndicate involved in illegal arms trade. Um, so Wolverine, of course, goes on a quest to rescue her. That sounds somewhat familiar to a certain big-name blockbuster movie. It does, yeah. doesn't it? And it features um, some of his longtime foes and friends, Omega Red, who is basically oh. uh, weapon one of the further Weapon X candidates after him, who's absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Yukio, who was in the um, Wolverine Samurai film and also in the recent Deadpool film. And even Cyclops, which then leads to the, the X-Men, X-Men series in 2011, um, which is set after the Dark Phoenix arc and the death of Jean Grey. So y- you can see how these all interrelate and they connect. Um, this one is, once again, goes straight down the Japanese angle using a Japanese mutant armor who appeared in the late 2000s. And she can create like a psychokinetic armor around herself and appear as a giant robot sort of thing. Kind of cool. Very Japanese. Very much so. Um, abducted, obje- she's abducted by the villain group, the U-Men. Not the X, not the Y, not the Z-Men, the U-Men. Um, they're stealing organs of mutants for some reason. Not sure on the story there. Um, it contains all the characters you'd expect from X-Men, so Cyclops, Wolverine, Xavier Storm, Beast, Emma Frost. They're all introduced in their own ways as from the first episode. I remember that part very vividly. Mm-hmm. When you said U-Men, I'm like, are they like U-boats? They just sort of yeah. surface and just go, ha, it yeah. was us all along. But um, <laughs> I was thinking their motives are so unusual that people are like, uh, and thus they were named. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but all, all of these series were all done from the same studio. It will have the same art style or all interconnected leading up to the films. And then the last one was Blade. Now, hey. notice how I haven't mentioned Blade in any of these previous ones. You have not. Why? Why? Shouldn't that? he appear to introduce him? Um, yeah. You'd think so. That's what they were going for. Maybe he's so stealthy that he was in the background of all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the fourth and final of the series, and Wolverine appears in the show instead to connect to the others. But it, Blade's visiting the Japan. The Japan. <laughs> I need more caffeine. He visits the Japan. Um, on a mission where he o- o- not only confronts Deacon Frost, who's the vampire who killed his mother when he was in the womb. And, and made that him a was the villain of the first um, Blade film, I yes, remember. Yes, it was. He also comes up at odds with an organization of vampires known as Existence. I can't find any background on them. Um, I didn't actually get to watch the Blade one. It's the one I didn't watch. Um, but I think they were a standalone, because yeah. I certainly haven't heard of them. So this was written by someone important, the son of legendary new wave Japanese screenmaker Fukusaku Kinji. This is the gentleman who wrote Battles Without Honor and Humanity. His last film was Battle Royale. Oh. And he did Shogun Samurai. He is one of the most decorated film guys from that period in Japan. Mm -hmm. So his son did the writing for it. Um, Wolverine appears in the show, obviously only character not to appear outside of them, but then they have two films, which is Iron Man Rise of Technovore and Avengers Confidential. Um, 
Technivore? I'd, yeah. I'd, I'm, I, I don't know. Not going there. No. Let's move on. I watched a little <laughs> of it myself, actually. It was um, about as anime as it gets, actually. Yeah. Kind of reminded me a touch of Akira. But this is the thing. Like, There, there is a strong connection here um, between Marvel and Japanese animation and manga from about the mid-2000s. Um, there is a Spider-Man manga. There are manga for Inhumans, for X-Men. There's currently just finished a second season of an X-Men anime as well, which is separate from these, which came later. Actually, I believe I saw a live-action Japanese Spider-Man TV show a very long time ago. <laughs> uh, he had a giant robot um, uh, uh, in the style of X-Men. And yes, the giant Hell robot yeah. had a sword. <laughs> this was because well, we, um, we we have seen as well how Japanese culture has influenced things with um, like hentai kamen, um, which we won't obviously go into because this show must stay PG. Um, oh but there, there is a strong connection between that show and Spider Man and several other um, Marvel characters who are gloriously ripped off. Um, but on the note of that, we should talk about the exchange that went the other way, which is to do with Western animation taking hints from Eastern. Wi-Fi radio. I'm not sure that's actually an anime. I don't care. It doesn't matter. East meets West. That's right, it doesn't matter because we're going to be talking about... Avatar The Last Airbender. Not the film. <laughs> <laughs> no. We've, we'll get that out of the way quick. Yes, the animated series that ran from... What was it? 2005? Uh, yes, that was from 2005 to around 2008. Because, I mean, we, we, me and Coco hadn't actually seen this, and you made me and her sit down and watch it um, mm. over several weeks. Um, it was a proper binge. I watched, it was. I watched the hell out of it when it first came out. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, living at my cousin's place for a while, and they had Foxtel, so I got to see all of the first series in one big packet on Cartoon Network. It wow. was wonderful. Really it still stands out as one of my favourite animated series of all time. Mm -hmm. So, bit of backstory. This all takes place in a uh, mysterious world where people can move the elements. Some people are born with the ability to have an attunement to the earth, to water, to air, or to fire. Kind of bending it to their will. Precisely, yeah. as the name suggests. They are like earthbenders, waterbenders, and such like that. And these people live in a certain harmony. They have their own countries. And there's only four elements, isn't there? Fire, wind, wind water. water. There's no heart. No this heart. isn't Pokemon. <laughs> there's no child there standing with a live there's beating no heart going, doom, 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 doom. powers combined, I am the Avatar. And there exists one person in the world, only one of these people at any one time, who has the power to control all four of the elements. That's the Avatar. Exactly. Um, much I'll... much like the Dalai Lama, whenever they die, he the uh, Avatar is reborn somewhere else in the world in sort of sequence with the elements mm. into one of the tribes. Now, this all changes one time when the Fire Nation attacks. And there is the beginning of a very continuing meme. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Alo along with this wonderful meme as well. Oh, my God! I was wondering I where that sound file I went. I thought you were going to play a little bit of, um, what was the song? Burn Baby Burn Disco Inferno. No, no. <laughs> Secret Tunnel. Secret Tunnel. Uh, <laughs> also from there, which we never understood until we watched it. This show yeah, breeds so many little memes, so many little in-jokes, because its community is very dedicated to the show and falls mm. very much in love with it. Um, it is beloved. There mm -hmm. is a reason for this, I think, well what I've been personally able to gather is because 
of its themes because it treats its viewers as adults. Yeah, which is what mm. a lot of Japanese animation does. Precisely. That's why it really grabs at people's um, imaginations because there was another series, uh, the Batman animated series. That dealt with death. That dealt with murder. That dealt with like these... Mental illness very, as well, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. These very, very harsh issues. M much like that. Avatar deals with war, imperialism, literal genocide. And mm. very complex characters. Exactly. Oh, the redemption arc for a certain character who shall not be mentioned because spoilers, because you, mm. ought to all, you at home yeah. must all watch this. I feel like everyone needs to watch this as spoiler-free as possible oh, because yeah. it's so worth it. The questions that these shows ask on, like, destiny and sort of, like, fate, deeper meanings behind all that sort of thing, but it even touches on contemporary matters like identity, discrimination, marginalization. Yeah, it does. Well. Messages can be sort of heavy-handed in the first series, mind you. Yeah. But I don't think it takes away from it. And it only seems more natural like, as it goes along. And as mentioned with character arcs, everyone develops, everyone grows and learns and... Ah, I just I could talk about this for days. All right, so l let's have a look at the background of this because obviously um, it's it's a series which was actually created by a Western studio, not out of Japan, and it has a very similar look to Japan. But where did the people who came up with this idea work before it? Because <laughs> surely they must have some sort of Japanese influence. Oh, they had plenty of Japanese influence, but not in their work environment. This comes from Brian Konietzko and Michael Dante DiMartino, pair okay. of animators for Film Roman. These guys worked together for quite a long time on such productions as Family Guy and King of the Hill. Okay. Uh, if you guys know wow. these, they're yeah. very uh, Simpsons-esque TV shows, yeah. very uh, American. I guess at the same time, the characters in those shows are qu are complex. At the oh, same of course. Time, aren't they? Th Except for Peter Griffin. There's, yeah. there's thought behind A these shows, bit, yeah. arguably. <laughs> but um, this was conceived in 2002 while they were working. Ryan made a sketch of a bald young man herding sky beasts and showed it to his good mate Dante who was watching a documentary about people wandering through the South Pole. Okay. They pitched the show to Nickelodeon two weeks later and it premiered in 2005, three years later. Wow. Between then and now, it's just won all of the awards and captured imaginations everywhere. Things can move really fast yeah, in this can. industry if wow. you have a good idea. Mm -hmm. Kind of inspiring. Yeah. Now, the, the interesting thing as well is that it was there. There are a lot of international uh, cultural influences on this as well. Absolutely, um, especially um, to do with the bending styles. Uh, yes, uh, the each of the elemental bending styles, because these guys were such enormous fans of Hong Kong action cinema and your old school <laughs> kung fu movies. Each one of the sort of the uh, elemental styles involves a sort of a uh, movement base to it. Earthbending is based on a kung fu style called Hungar. Firebending is based on northern Shaolin kung fu. I don't know if you guys have watched videos of Shaolin monks uh, practicing, but... A little bit. I've seen Shaolin soccer. Yeah, does that count? Uh, about kung fu hustle? Kung fu hustle... <laughs> no, you don't have to answer All that. All right, get, uh, continue. So, no, what, what I, I'm just imagining Kung Fu Hustle in the Avatar universe now, and this pleases <laughs> me. Well, I'm guess I got the feeling that water bending was related to Tai Chi. Exactly that. There's very, very smooth, oh, okay. flowing movements, as you would see for something in water. Uh, air bending is based on something called Bagua. It's uh, similar to Tai Chi, I think. Okay. I um, yeah, there is a lot of research on this, and. The amount of forum arguments and like debates that the fans will go into about 
uh, name conventions, mm -hmm. wording, and each of the different elemental styles. Like, there was a hot debate I was looking at about how one of the characters, the blind earthbender Toph, has her own version of the praying mantis fighting style mm. because her hands are always kept in close and her movements are so stiff. And, yeah... That's what this series breeds, just a dedicated fan base mm. just to... It's it's relevant to everyone, isn't it? I'd say so, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I think we do need to uh, talk about uh, our next topic in a moment, but I would like to leave with the thoughts that Avatar is, while it, it might look like a lot of episodes to many people, it is a mm, phenomenal series, and I wish I had seen it earlier. It um, has um, fantastic spin-offs as well. The Legend of Korra, which follows directly on from it, um, is not to be considered just like rehashing or anything like that yeah. is it is its own series it's a new character altogether so it, it's something else. It, it's it's set in the future and it's a lot it, it shows like how the world punk. can change yeah very it's like yeah. there's automobiles and stuff and uh there was of course the Shyamalan film which shall Look, not be named i've mm -hmm. i haven't seen the film but i kind of feel a bit bad for him because by all accounts the guy is an amazing dad and his kids loved the f the show so much that he just wanted to make him a film, and you know, M like maybe when he should have done a bit more research then. Yeah, but like, you know, it Harsh. kind of reminds me of like you know, in Christmas, if your parents are like, you know, what do you want coming up? Say you're like, oh, I want a Barbie doll, yeah. right? <laughs> and then you unwrap the present, and, and it's, it's a brats. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like you know those one of those things that you get in the sideshow when you're chucking a, the ball at the thing and it falls uh, down, and then it's, oh, it's the like a, a knockoff. Yes, yeah, like like. A knockoff Barbie. It's like the, the the thought was there, but they just didn't understand. The execution was just mm. off yeah. a bit. And of course, uh, countering that uh, live action film, there is a live action series coming out, Ooh. hosted by Di Martino and his oh. mate. Oh well, then it'll Wonderful. be good. That will be on Netflix. There is a lot of hype and rumor surrounding that. Mm. Looks very lovely. Well, I think we better move on and uh, catch them all. <laughs> Wi-Fi Radio! All seven Dragon Balls? <laughs> I think I watched that as a kid. Oh yeah, I remember that. Back catalogue. No, no not, not, not Dragon Balls. <laughs> but we do need to talk about Pokemon. Um, which, you know, not just because of Detective Pikachu, but if we're talking about East-West Exchange, this is huge. Oh. Oh no. It has returned. Coco, we lost I, those in the move. I thought I thought we lost them too, but clearly Coco's hit them somewhere very, very obvious. And, Kyle, uh, you did not do a good enough job of losing them. Well, I've got my Thor's hammer, <laughs> and that, that, that's going to be used. And Mjolnir will uh, be brought out to smash the one remaining kazoo. I'll just make sure to, but they were to buy more. Get them off eBay, folks. They're cheap. Catch them all. <laughs> so let, let's talk about Pokemon. It first aired in Japan in 1997, and OLM Studios have been creating the show ever since. There are The name is Oriental Light and Magic. That's what the OLM yeah. stands for. And they create other series that don't really fit with this, such as Berserk. And Steel Angel Kurumi, which ah. we won't go into, but mm. I, we did see that a few years ago, and Deltora Quest, which we'll mention later on. Hey. Um, and it began international syndication in late 1998. Now, it's had over a thousand episodes now, which is crazy. Um, 30 and specials. Ash hasn't aged a day. No, he hasn't. He's got the, you know, steals the souls of all his female companions. <laughs> um, it's also had, you know, plenty of spin offs, including five Japanese variety shows. I what? know, right? I, I'm not going to go there, but 
the, these are like full seasons of shows. Japanese TV 22 is Twenty-two animated films. Twenty-second ones out this year. Twenty-two seasons currently. Twenty-second ones currently airing. Whoa. And first live-action film this year with Detective Pikachu. Now. It was created originally to promote the games, but has been a very successful series in and of its own right. And the US release of the show was only one month before Red and Blue were released in September 1998. Those games were great. Mm -hmm. I played Red to death. Oh, yeah. So did I. Oh, boy. I remember seeing people play them on their big, bulky brick Game Boy. I still have mine. <laughs> oh, so oh, do wow. I. Yeah. And Those things are museum pieces. They now. are. <laughs> and mine, I don't think mine works. Um, the first four seasons were cell animated, but everything since there is uh, digitally animated. So if anyone's trying to sell you Pokemon cells on eBay, which are of anything after the fourth season, beware. They're not real. Because you have uh, been trying to make a collection of anime cells, haven't you? Yeah, well, we managed to get hold of one in London when me and Coco were visiting over there. And Mm -hmm. of uh, Goku in uh, Dragon Ball Z and Certificate of Authenticity and all that. And And then since then we've just had a look around on eBay and Mm -hmm. saw what we could find. You know what though? Mm -hmm. I would love to get hold of an animation cell from episode 18 which is one of their banned episodes. Yes. Banned in the US. So Pokemon has the... uh, a terrible history of having its episodes banned yeah, some, internationally yeah. in different locations Sometimes for different things. they miss the mark. Now, are these bans happening for uh, reasons like uh, for kids? Yes. In oh. some cases, yes. In other cases, uh, cultural sensitivity at the time. Yeah. Um, so what was episode 18? Episode 18 is an episode called Beauty and the Beach. Oh, no. Yes. I think I know this one. I think everyone's heard of this one. <laughs> Misty takes part in a bikini contest only to find that Team Rocket, Jesse and James <laughs> are also taking part. How is James in the contest, you may ask? He's in very good drag. With inflatable He's, boobs. Yeah. He du- <laughs> literally in this episode, he doubles their size, grabs them and says to Misty, you participated 10 years too early. She's a child at this oh point. Well, yeah, they're 10 years old. Now, uh, we, we <laughs> should actually mention the plot for anyone who's unfamiliar with Pokemon, but yeah. Pokemon follows the adventures of Ash Ketchum, 10-year-old mm-hmm. Pokemon guy who, Pokemon trainer, goes and gets his first Pokemon for Professor Oak, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a Pikachu. He's known in Japan as Satoshi. Mm-hmm. This is in a world where there are monsters roaming around that you can catch in these little cyber balls. And use them to battle other people's Pokemons. Now, we imagine you probably would be living under a rock if you hadn't heard of it in some shape or form. But um, this then brings us to what I would like to talk about, which is the band episode, which is the legend of Miniru, which is the Japanese word for Dratini. Now, this is set in, in the games, there's an area called the Safari Zone, which is like a safari area. You go in, you get a limited yeah. amount of steps you can walk to catch Pokemon in. Special <laughs> balls to catch them with. Yeah, you um, can throw bait them bait them. Them. and so on. Now, it was banned by four kids this episode for two reasons. The appearance of firearms, which is was the first in the Pokemon series. Now, some sources cite this as its timing, very unfortunate timing, it starts airing in September, August in um, America. The Columbine shooting was oh. in April 99, and this is episode 35. Uh, it's pretty much bang on when the shooting would have happened uh, as far as their broadcast schedule goes. Yeah, that'll so uh, obviously you can't at that point be showing yeah. guns in a child's mm. show. So the, the 35th yeah. episode of the original Japanese series was never released over here because of that. The other reason 
Meowth has a Hitler moustache as a disguise. What oh. the? And we're not talking just like a silly one. It looks bang on like it. Um, Japanese sensitivity coming through again. I mean, someone could make the case that he has a Charlie Chapman moustache. Well, some could. Um, however, um, I believe there is a moment where he raises his arm, which looks like a salute. Oh, okay, yeah. So, that'll yep. yep. Now, four kids, we know for a fact, does have this episode. They just didn't dub it because they use footage of it in the pokey rap. Because <laughs> it's the oh. only place you can see a Taurus. It's oh, the wow. only place um, you can see a Rhyhorn. It's so the only place you can see a Dragonair. Yes. The removal of this episode led to continuity problems. Oh. Yes. So Ash captured 30 Tauroses, which later appeared in episodes in tournaments, and they were never addressed where he got them from. Has anyone ever considered whether it was a good idea to give a 10-year-old... A monster. Monsters to yeah. like catch and fight and... <laughs> I mean... Ten-year-olds. Like, your standard people. starter three Pokemon are a Charmander, a Bulbasaur, and a Squirtle. Squirtle blasts water from his mouth. No big deal there. Uh, Bulbasaur has little razor leaves which can cut apples. And vine whips. Yes. Yeah, which, um, you know, there's questionable stuff there. Yeah. But... Give a kid a Charmander. That's <laughs> asking for trouble. It's like that's the, like saying I saw a have comic on that recently, actually, and it's like you know a Bulbasaur is lying in the bed and it's crying, and the trainer's going, oh. "It's okay, you've just seeded the bed. It's no problem. It's <laughs> in its seed." Then it's got oh. you know the Bulbas, uh, so the Squirtle, and it's like, "Oh, you wet the bed. It's all right." And then the third panel is a, a man outside his home is quaking backwards and forwards as his house goes up in flames behind him, and the Charmander going, "Cha cha." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's like um, Pokemon in this universe go from that kind of status to psychologically traumatizing psychic-powered Pokemon to godly, overpowered things which can destroy the worlds. And 10-year-old kids are running around with these in their pocket. Now, the the interesting thing about the Pokemon series is, as you mentioned earlier, Ash has not aged a single day in it. Um, (laughs) They did update his animation style about four years ago. I really wish he grew a little bit. Yeah, I wish he'd just have a birthday. He also has not won a single Pokemon League competition. (laughs) Then why are we even bothering to follow him? He got very, very close. He got to the final and then lost because of a dodgy reason, which sent the internet into an uproar. Why are we even bothering? He's exactly. obviously never going to get anywhere. Why no. is he even, he even bo- You know why? Because he's stuck in a loop. Yes. He's stuck in a loop but and he can't get out. On the note of getting stuck in a loop, we need to talk about another band episode. Oh, yes. I did have something about this. This is to do with Porygon, isn't it? <laughs> the Porygon incident, or as it was known in Japan, Pokemon Shock. Wow. Now, what happened? The 38th episode <laughs> of the named. first season called Cyber Soldier Porygon. So this is only three episodes after the Taurus episode. Exactly. Uh, this aired only once on Japanese TV, just once in 1997. The story, Ash and Pikachu must go inside a p- computer program, Matrix style, okay. to see what is causing mischief at a Pokemon center. Spoiler alert, it's a Porygon. Uh, it's, a po- it's a Porygon and a plot by Team Rocket. So a Porygon is a digital Pokemon, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, which so they, n- they never really explained that, um, but we'll just go with it. <laughs> if don't you can ask put, questions. If you can put a Pokemon in a ball, you can probably take a digital Pokemon, put it in the ball and bring it into the real world. And somehow send physical people into the Matrix as well. But yeah, uh, sure. Beside yeah. the point, 20 minutes into this episode, Pikachu uses a Thunderbolt to destroy a missile. And this causes the screen to flash red and black very, very rapidly for six seconds. Mm. Doesn't seem like much, but... It happens again, doesn't it? 
uh, a bunch of times throughout the episode, but like this was like the longest sustained one. Which is actually quite a long time in TV. Oh, yeah. And a long time if you're photosensitive and have epilepsy. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. So. Okay. What, what's the death toll? <laughs> uh, okay. No death toll. People didn't die. Okay. That's good. But that six seconds was enough to affect not one, not two, but 685 people. What? Oh uh, rough gosh. numbers. That's 310 boys, 375 girls, all ages, but mostly children because Pokemon, mostly children yeah. watching it. Symptoms included blurred vision, headaches, dizziness, nausea, oh. others experiencing seizures, blindness, convulsions, Whoa. and complete loss of consciousness. Well, oh I can see why gosh. it was banned. Uh, so <gasps> most people affected recovered pretty quickly on ambulance rides and stuff like that. More than 150 people were hospitalised. Two individual cases were hospitalised for up to two weeks. Wow. Want to hear something funny? Sure. Okay. I mean, this might only be funny to me because I'm a supervillain at heart, but I have one CNN article which sources that after this event, some had seizures when parts of the scene were rebroadcast during Japanese news network. Oh, no! Oh, no. <laughs> the, the, this oh, is no. like what happened recently with the Alexa. So there's, um, oh, there was a news story where they explained how a child used the voice commands on Alexa to order a load of stuff off Amazon. They demonstrated it in the news story because it was oh, so clear, no. everyone listening to that news story got a dollhouse ordered for Oh, them. no way! Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh, goodness. No. Th th this is why it's important as a journalist to think before you do things. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just not only did they hit over 600 people. I mean, this was like yeah. big news. That's this was so kind awkward. of a health scare. There was hysteria about this. But they hit them for a second time on the oh, afterwards. No. <laughs> Gee, me. Before we stop talking about Pokemon, let's have a quick talk about blackface. Oh, yeah. So, um, do we have to? We, I think we have I'll to be because we, we do need to talk about this. And it is a Japanese thing where even recently, blackface isn't really looked it's down on for some reason. I think. I think the cultural context isn't completely understood. They're, they're, but you look at the characters. Um, I mean, like Mr. Popo, for instance, in Dragon Ball Z, in the original <laughs> version, um, the original cells, he is black. In the Western version, they've tinted him so he's red instead. I thought he was blue. Red or blue. Depends on oh. which uh, which version. Four kids or... Yeah, I think uh, one like of the games it. has him as red, actually. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Th this is a similar thing which has happened in Pokemon a few times. Yeah. Uh, we've got two episodes to quickly go over with this. The first is episode 252. It's called The Ice Cave Jinx. Uh, you guys remember when Jinx had black skin and then she had purple skin? Yeah. This was yeah. early on. so um, When she looked like Mr. Popo's... Yeah. Thanks to her black, black skin and the way that her eyes looked and her lips looked, she looked like um, the original illustrated design of Little Black Sambo looked like a golly doll. Oh, no. And it did look very dodgy. So after that, she has been changed. Nintendo heard. Yeah. And they listened. Well, and they changed her to purple. I wonder if they understood, though. This seems to be yeah, a recurring bit. Well, uh, because they recently used it in the most recent season, episode didn't they? Episode 1005, 2018. Satoshi and Nagetu. <laughs> far out. Nagetu. Ashen <laughs> friends. Okay, so. All right. 
Ash, Ash and Friends. Episode <laughs> 1005, A Touchdown of Friendship. This uh, episode revolves around the Pokemon called Passimian, and during the course of oh, the yeah. plot, Ash wears face paint to disguise himself as one of the creatures. Now, Passimian is a white and black monkey Pokemon. Yeah, but there are bits that he should have painted on his face white, he painted black, and it looked real dodge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's been so you pulled. Can s- you can understand um, why that got pulled. Oh dear. It was the first widespread ban of a Pokemon episode in 15 years. Well, I mean, they managed it for a long time and then clearly that one slipped yeah, through. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But outside of this, Pokemon is generally a pretty kid-friendly show. Yeah, and, and the games are just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Everyone should play them. Except I've for Sun and Moon, because they're awful. I believe I've still got my set of old uh, Pokemon cards somewhere. Yeah, I found mine during my move as well. <laughs> so go figure. But yeah, I mean, that does bring us to the end of, uh, obviously, the Pokemon segment. We could spend an entire episode on it, especially talking about Detective Pikachu and all of the spin-offs and the games, but... And maybe we will. We may be well later, but we do need to head on back out. Kawaii Fire Radio. I really am going to have to find a way to take that off you, Kiko. She's only going to have what? another one later. She always has a kazoo on her. All She's right. like a ninja. I have one last note to talk about with East Meets West, and it's a very Australian note. So, Del Toro Quest is an Australian book series by Aussie author Emily Roder. She created a fantasy series which ran from 2000 to 2005. There are eight books in the first part and then another five and then another four for parts Mm. two and three. I believe I saw uh, books of that in my book club thing at school. Yeah, it was very popular and Skoltastic, which are the publishers, also released... um, Scholastic. Scholastic. Um, The group which released like those weekly little pamphlets to the local libraries and all that for upcoming book club stuff. Mm. Um, They really pushed it because they were the publisher. So it ran, has had fi- over 50 million copies sold worldwide, but that's only as of 2010. The figures are expected to be closer to 20 at the moment. A 65-part Del Toro Quest anime series covered the first eight books and was broadcast in Japan in 07. That's wonderful. Rhoda chose this option because she and her kids loved Japanese anime and nice. wanted any adaptation of Del Toro to be considered cool by kids of today. <laughs> yeah. Success. There is also a manga adaptation of it, which was by Makoto Niwano and was serialized in Bomb Bomb Comics. Um, there have been interests in adapting it to a film, but she's refused to let anyone change the story, which is why... Obviously, exposure for it is quite limited. Indeed. Yeah. Well, on that note, we do next episode is going to be sort of East meets West as well because we're talking about the biggest monster of all. Godzilla. The kaiju of all kaijus. Oh, I was thinking Warner Bros. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll be talking about the new Godzilla film and obviously it's... Uh, cultural impact that relates to Japan Mm. there is animated series for Godzilla which we want to talk about as well and some of the history around it because it's actually really quite unique not to mention Godzilla King of the Monsters rated PG-13 out on um, June the 8th (laughs) you're quite well prepared for that I am because I am hyped I want to see this movie it is going to be great Mm. but we'll be back next same time in two weeks Uh, apologies for the delay well I shouldn't say same time same time we'll be back on the normal time normal time in two weeks time you guys won't be sick no will you we won't we promise I'll put you back in the Pokemon Pokemon Centre
It will happen. <laughs> Don't do look it. Look after yourselves. And I everyone, like you should look after yourselves too. We'll put that uh, link to the documentary from the BBC up on our Facebook page along with a couple of pictures during the week. Make sure you check it out. But until then, watch some anime. Enjoy yourself. Ciao. Catch you guys later.